And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis 18. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. And the Lord appeared to him, that is Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. 
He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Last week in chapter 17, when God made this covenant, uh, confirmed this covenant with Abraham through the sign of circumcision, God gave Abraham a new name, Abram to Abraham and his wife Sarai to Sarah, and made this promise that he would bring them, that he would give them a son, that Sarah would bear a son in her old age. In verse 7 and 8 of chapter 17, God tells Abraham that he's going to establish this covenant with Abraham and with his descendants for all generations. And that the point of the covenant is that he will be God to them. So verse 7 says, An everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And then in verse 8, he says, I will give you a land for your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So twice he says, I will be God to you. I will be your God. And I I said briefly last week that that is the main blessing of the covenant. That is the main good news of what God promises to Abraham and to his offspring. A relationship, intimacy, fellowship with God. And that, that fellowship with God, that's what humans were created for. That's in Genesis, when God made Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2, he placed them in the garden. And the garden was this environment where they would thrive and flourish and enjoy God's creation and enjoy each other. But primarily, it was the place where they would enjoy God himself. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve had sinned and rebelled against God, after they, they rejected God's place in their life, shortly after they eat the fruit, it says in verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And it's not made explicit there in the passage, but it's, it's strongly implied that God walking in the garden was a regular occurrence. That the garden was the place where God would come down and live with Adam and Eve. The garden was the place where Adam and Eve got to be God's neighbors. They got to dwell with God. They got to relate to God, to walk with God day after day, to fellowship with him. In other words, to be God's friends. To be in this loving, personal, meaningful relationship with God. That's what they were created for. That's what you and I were created for. And that's what we lost when we sinned. So Adam and Eve sin, and now they're afraid of God's presence. They recognize we have severed the relationship that we had with God. God is no longer our friend. He's now our enemy. Or more importantly, we are his enemy. And what does, how does Genesis 3 end? 
with God placing Adam and Eve outside the garden. You can no longer live here in the garden with me. So it's what we were created for. It's what we lost in our sin. It's what Jesus died to give back to us. Maureen just read out of John 15, Jesus saying, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you my friends. I've, I've purchased friendship for you with my blood on the cross, with my death on your behalf. When I, when I take on the penalty for sin, when, when Jesus propitiates, appeases, atones for God's wrath, God's righteous anger for sin, when Jesus takes that on, what's left? When there's now no more condemnation, there's no enmity, we are no longer God's enemies, what are we now? We are God's friends again. We get to have that relationship restored. And that's where we're headed. That's, that's the point of heaven. Heaven is the place where God says in Revelation 21, I will be with them as their God and they will be my people. There's no need for a son in heaven because Jesus will be the light in heaven. Jesus will always be there. Jesus will always be present with his people in heaven. In heaven, we will walk with Jesus all day, every day in perfect peace, perfect harmony, perfect joy, perfect intimacy. We will see him face to face. He will be with us as our God. He will be our best friend. We will have the deepest, most satisfying relationship with Jesus that's possible. That's where we're headed. That's, that's the whole point of heaven. And so if, if that's offered in Genesis 17, this I will be their God, I will be God to you, that's offered in 17. Chapter 18 is an example of what that looks like. Chapter 18 is a picture of what it looks like when God makes a covenant with you and becomes your friend. In, in Genesis 18, we see what it looks like for Abraham to have God as his God to have this close personal relationship, to have this friendship with God. So in Genesis 18, Abraham, in a sense, is enjoying the benefits of the covenant. He is no longer this man who's living out in the wilderness, but rather he's a man who's been called to God, who God has drawn near to and who God means to relate to on a personal level. And so the, the scene, there are two scenes here in Genesis 18. There's verses 1 through 21 where God comes and shares this meal in Abraham's house. Abraham's tent has a meal that's given to him by Abraham. And so he gets into Abraham's life and Abraham's personal business in verses 1 through 21. And then in 22 through 33, God invites Abraham into his business. God invites Abraham into the work that he's doing outside of Abraham's family. So first scene in verses 1 through 21. Look at verse 1. This is a note from Moses as he's narrating this scene. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent 
in the heat of the day. So Moses tells us from the start, this is God visiting Abraham. The person that's coming to Abraham's tent is God himself. In other words, this is another revelation of God, self-revelation. God showing himself personally visiting Abraham as he did in chapter 12 and in chapter 15 and in chapter 16 and in chapter 17. This is God speaking directly to Abraham. So Moses tells us that, but Abraham doesn't know that. We know more than Abraham as the story is unfolding. As readers, we're given an inside scoop. We understand the nature of this interaction from the outset But Abraham learns slowly what's happening here. So we know, but Abraham doesn't. Verses 2 through 8 is a picture of what hospitality looked like in the ancient Near East. Abraham is sitting sitting outside his tent. It's hot. It's the middle of the day. And so he's ready for this little afternoon siesta. He's sitting there. And these three strangers approach. He looks up, verse 2, lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And so everything that follows, once Abraham sees these three men, this is a picture of what hospitality looked like in the ancient Near East. And, And what Abraham's doing is what would have been expected of him. There's no hotels, there's no reservations in this day. And so when people are traveling, they're relying on the hospitality of strangers, people taking them in to their house, feeding them, giving them shelter. And Abraham rushes to do that. Abraham is eager to extend this hospitality. And what, what you see here in verses 2 through 8 reminds me of my, my grandmother. So my, my, my grandma, who I grew up next door to, she passed away a year ago. She was a farm wife and her love language was food. The way that she showed people love and affection was, was feeding them and especially feeding them in her house. Her, her greatest joy was showing hospitality through food in, in her home. And we used to joke that not being able to feed people was my grandma's worst nightmare. She would, she would wake up in cold sweats at the thought of running out of food. And if you get to know me well and see pictures of me as a kid, as the grandson who lived next door, I was the chief beneficiary of that. And I was not thin as as a child. I was a little on the chubby side because of my grandma's hospitality. You could not go to her house without food being put in your mouth. And my uncle worked for a software company in St. Paul. And they were doing business with a Japanese firm. And so a group of Japanese businessmen came to St. Paul to do, to do some business with my uncle. And my uncle offered to take them to my grandparents' farm to show them a, a working American farm. Here's a cross-cultural experience. I'd love to show you hospitality by, by showing you this farm. Now, the only problem was he didn't share this plan with my grandparents. And so suddenly, a bus full of Japanese businessmen shows up in my grandparents' farmyard. And my grandma fed all of them. She had enough pie frozen in the the freezer. The deep freezer was full of pies. And she was able to feed every single one 
of these businessmen without warning. She, was, she didn't have notice, but she was ready. And that's, that's akin to what's happening here in this passage. Abraham doesn't have warning. He's not told that these men are coming. They show up and he rushes to care for them. It was a point of honor for Abraham to extend lavish hospitality on these guests, regardless of whether they're known or expected. He doesn't know who these people are. He's not expecting them. And yet he lavishes hospitality on them. And, and Abraham's actions here, this is an A-plus model of how to show hospitality. This, this would have been held up as just a perfect job. Abraham conducts himself beautifully in the scene. So you see Abraham, he looks up and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And then verse six, Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour. Verse seven, and Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good, gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. The pacing here is intentional. Abraham's rushing to do his best. And he, he offers in verse four, he says, verse three, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread. So the, the little water and the morsel of bread becomes three sias of fine flour. And we all know what a sia is. It's, it's, it's bushels of flour. This is probably something like 50 loaves of bread. So 50 loaves of bread and milk and curds. So the best refreshment that he has to offer and an entire young bull. So this is a massive lavish feast. It's, it's meant to emphasize Abraham's high regard for his guests. So here are three men and he places before these three men 50 loaves of bread, buckets of milk and curds, and an entire young bull. And he's, he's telling them, you have the highest place of honor in my life. This, there's, there's no one else that I would rather give this to. In, in Genesis 43, when Joseph, he's been betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery in Egypt and he rises to power and he becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. You know that story. And his brothers come to Egypt to find relief from the famine. And all of his brothers, he makes a meal for them, sets his brothers at his table, and he gives all of his brothers a portion but then for Benjamin, his full brother, remember the rest of his brothers are half-brothers, for Benjamin, his, his favorite brother, what does he do? He gives him a portion that is five times as much as his brothers. So he's signaling, this is my special brother. This is, the, of all the people at this table, he's the one that I love most dearly. And so that's, that's what Abraham's doing here. He's lavishing hospitality on them, showing them how highly he regards them, even though he doesn't know them. Because again, Abraham doesn't know at this point that he is interacting with God and two of his angels. 
the author of Hebrews probably has this scene in mind in Hebrews 13, 1 and 2, when he says, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. So Abraham thinks that he is showing hospitality to human strangers. But the readers, we, we see that Abraham is doing a better job than even he himself realizes. He is right to serve them. He is right to welcome them. He is right to call the man standing before him Lord. He is right to bow himself to the earth. Abraham is more right than even he knows. And as we look at verses 2 through 8, there's obvious hints to the sacrificial system. Abraham bringing fine flour, a young and tender bull, and curds and milk, that points back to Genesis 4.4, where Abel had brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel's sacrifice. So what does, what does Abel bring to the Lord? The best that he has, his first fruits, his, the cream of the crop goes to God, and God receives Abel's offering gladly. So it points back to Genesis 4, and it points forward to everything that's going to come in the Mosaic Law. The, the readers here, Moses' audience, the people of Israel, they would have understood this. They would have said, this is, this is just a picture of what we do. This is a picture of the sacrifices that we offer to the Lord. These are precursors to what we bring, the grain offerings, the bulls, the lambs, the goats. And in the Mosaic Law, they're called to bring the first fruits and the firstborn, not the leftovers, not the cast-offs. So this is a picture of that. What, what's the significance? What's the significance of giving gifts to God, offering food or drink to God, or in our time, money or time or energy? Why does God demand it of his people? Why does God demand a sacrifice? Why is he pleased by it? Why does he accept it? We know that God doesn't need Abraham's food and Abraham's drinks. We know that God doesn't need Israel's sacrifices. And we know that God doesn't need our money, our time, our energy. It's not as if in this passage, God has left heaven, come down to earth, and he's on his way to Sodom and he realizes, oof, I didn't pack a lunch. I'm, I'm getting a little tired. It's kind of hot out here. I wish someone would take care of me. That's not what's happening in this passage. In, in Psalm 50, the psalmist says, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Psalm 50, verse 7, Hear, O my people, I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fields. 
For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So God's not hungry when he shows up at Abraham's front door. God's not hungry when he tells the Israelites, offer sacrifices. God's bank account isn't getting a little bit dry when he says, hey, church, give. That's not what's happening here. Romans 11, Paul says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So this food is not because Abraham, because God's hungry. The sacrifices aren't because God needs them. The money isn't because God's going broke. Sacrifice is a picture of hospitality toward God, of our affections for God. It's true that sacrifice is first a reminder that we cannot enter the presence of God without the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. That We have to remember that. That's, that's the first thing that a sacrifice is. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So if, if we don't remember that, then nothing else matters. But after that, Sacrifice is also a picture of our love and our esteem for God. It is our pleasure to bring a good gift to him. It is our pleasure to serve him. It is our pleasure to give him not our leftovers, not a minimum monthly payment, but to set our best before him as as a symbol of our affection for him. Abraham is offering these gifts because it's his, it's his joy to do so. And that, this second part, that has heightened importance for us as, as members of the new covenant. We know that Jesus has made a once and for all sacrifice for sins. The sacrificial system is over. We don't offer the blood of bulls and goats as Christians. That, that is finished. The, the Lamb of God has come. So the sacrificial system is complete. But we are still called to give of our time, our energy, our resources, not to appease God, to make atonement for what we have done. Jesus has done that. But rather we give as a response to his kindness and mercy. We give because we love him, because it is our pleasure to share our very best with him. You don't enter into a life of Christian service because you think, well, if I don't do it, nobody will. God needs my help. You do it because you think, God has done, look at what God has done for me. What else would I give myself to? What else would I spend my life on? Where else would I give my time and energy? What else would I want to invest my treasure in? He is my friend. It is my delight to do so. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9 that God loves a cheerful giver. If you, if you had dear friends come to your house 
And if you spent the entire evening complaining about what a drag it was to host them, to feed them, that wouldn't make sense. Something would be off in your heart. It would be a sign of unhealthiness in you or in the relationship. So if engaging with the Lord, if giving your time, energy, or resources, if that feels primarily burdensome or frustrating or exhausting to you, something's not right. There's a dynamic in your heart that you need to explore with God and with others. So after Abraham has served these three men, we know them to be God and two of his angels, they ask Abraham about his wife, Sarah, who he tells them is in the tent. The Lord then tells Abraham that he will return to Abraham in a year and Sarah, his wife, shall have a son. So again, this is just a confirmation of the promise in chapter 17. And again, Abraham and Sarah don't know who these three guys are. This would have been a strange, confusing statement from some, some visitors. Where's your wife? I'm going to come back next year. She'll have a son. And Sarah, listening at the tent door, she responds as if she's confused and a little weirded out by what's saying. So verse 9, where's your wife? Verse 10, I will return. She'll have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? So Sarah's 90, her husband is 100, and the narrator makes explicit the obvious fact that biologically speaking, it's impossible for, ha for her to have children. And Sarah scoffs quietly in her heart. What is this guy talking about? Shall I have children now that I'm old? What does, he, what does he mean? Who is this person? And here the Lord reveals his identity. Verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham, Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? The events of chapter 17 were quite recent. That had just happened. And the Lord had revealed himself there to Abraham in chapter 17 as El Shaddai, the Lord Almighty, God Almighty. And he had told Abraham, Sarah's going to have a son. So this is the same thing happening here in chapter 18. He, he reveals himself again in a similar way. Chapter 17, I am God Almighty. Chapter 18, is anything too hard for the Lord? Answer, no, I'm God Almighty. So, is anything too hard for the Lord? She will have a child. Same promise. But his self-revelation here, it's, it's not primarily for Abraham's sake. It's for Sarah's sake. Remember, God has spoken to Abraham multiple times. And he's even spoken to Hagar once. But he's never spoken to Sarah until now. Now she, she has had second-hand accounts of God's revelation, now she has a first-hand account. So again, what does it mean to have the Lord as your God, as, as promised in chapter 17? You have a God who is not disinterested and aloof, who is not distant and silent, but you have a God who is near. 
who is intimately involved with the details of your life, who pursues you, who speaks to you in a way that draws you out, exposes the depths of your heart. And he's the kind of friend, he is the kind of friend who speaks to you not necessarily in a way that's comfortable, but in a way that's comforting. So God speaks to to Sarah, exposes her unbelief, exposes her doubts, exposes her her hard heart, her, her wounds from these decades of barrenness, exposes that, but in an ultimately comforting way. That's friendship. This is what it looks like. And incidentally, this is, a, this is one reason that we have to be in our Bibles as Christians, both daily in your personal devotions and weekly sitting under the preaching of the word. This is, this is why. If we are in Christ, God is our friend and he means to speak to us. But we cut ourselves off if we're not in his word. How can we hear from God if we're not reading his word? But if if we do open ourselves up to him by opening his word and sitting under preaching and and in our personal devotions, God will speak to us. So in, in our personal devotions, we receive exactly the right word for a given situation. It, I've had this happen to me in my preaching where I'll, I'll preach a sermon and someone will come up to me and say, it's like you were speaking directly to me. I wasn't. I don't know the details all the time. That's not me. That's the Holy Spirit speaking through his word. I don't, there's a hundred or so people here this morning. I don't know all the needs. I could never if this sermon is already long, if I was speaking specifically to all of your needs, we'd be here all week. But the Holy Spirit can look into each of your hearts and say, you need this word today. I'm going to feed you this way today. That's friendship. That's love. That's a God who cares deeply about you, means to engage you in the particulars of your situation. So first, God deals with Abraham and Sarah. Their life gets involved in the business of their life, takes a meal in their home, engages in the specifics of what's going on. And second, God invites Abraham to intercede for Sodom. God invites Abraham to know about and participate in what he is doing in the world. So we're going to talk a lot about what happens in Sodom and Gomorrah next week, but just really briefly... Look at verse 16. The men set out from there. They looked down toward Sodom. Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? So God asks this question. Should I, should I involve Abraham in, in what I'm about to do? And the answer is yes, because of the covenant. Shall I hide what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation? All the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have chosen him that he may may command his children and his household after him. So God says, listen, I have made a covenant relationship with Abraham. I have called Abraham out. I have set my affections on Abraham. It wouldn't be appropriate for me to hide my plans from him. He is my friend. And so I'm going to take counsel with him. I'm going to bring him in to my program. I'm going to tell him what I am doing. So God has come to investigate the extent of the wickedness in Sodom and Gomorrah because he's heard the outcry. 
And the two men with God depart for Sodom. And in chapter 19, verse 1, it's made explicit. These are angels. But Abraham remains standing before the Lord. And what, does, what happens next? Abraham, on invitation from God, draws near to him, approaches God in prayer and petition, and intercedes for Sodom. So Abraham approaches God and he says, God, I know that you're deeply concerned with justice, that you love the righteous. Suppose there are 50 righteous. You won't sweep them away with the wicked, will you? Let let the judge of all the earth do what is just. So he appeals to God's character here. And there's this incredible scene where it starts with 50 and then 45, and then 40, and 30, and 20, and 10. So he keeps approaching God. He keeps going to God, interceding, increasing his request, pleading with God, almost nagging God again and again. And so this is not deism, this idea, yes, there is a God, but he's distant, He's far off. He's unapproachable. He doesn't take counsel with anyone, let alone us. That's not what's happening here. This is a personal, intimate relationship. God shares his plans with Abraham, invites him to grapple with God and what God is doing. God is patient and gracious with Abraham, willing to listen to him, willing to accept his requests. So what we see Abraham doing here in Genesis 18 is what God, what Jesus tells us to do in Luke 18, this parable of the persistent widow. He he tells them this parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and never lose heart. And then Jesus tells this story of this, this widow who keeps nagging this judge, give me justice, give me justice, give me justice. And finally, this wicked judge listens to the woman, not because he cares, but because he wants her to leave him alone. And then Jesus said, if, if the wicked judge acts that way, how do you think your father will act? He wants to hear your prayers. He wants you to intercede on, on other people's behalf. He wants you to present your requests to him. He is never bothered by you when you approach. So we're, we're called to pray. We're called to intercede in the same way that Abraham did. And again, we're going to cover this next week when we see what happens to Sodom, what happens to the people who are there. We'll see that there aren't any righteous people there, not even 10. But God actually answers Abraham in a way that's even more gracious than Abraham asks. The intercession stops at 10. Next week, we'll see there is zero, but that in spite of of the fact that there is zero, God will spare Lot because of Abraham. So chapter 19, 29, it says, so, that, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So God listens to Abraham. So just so quickly, there should be no situation, whether it's a social, political, big world situation or a personal situation. There should be no one in your life who you think it's beyond prayer. What's the point? I give up. Nothing could happen. 
nothing could change in their life. They're beyond the hope of redemption. Intercede for them. Call out to God for Christ to move, and he may indeed move. He loves to hear the prayers of his friends. And so let's, let's close there. I said fellowship with God, friendship with God, is it's what we were created for in the garden. It's what we lost when we sinned. It's what Christ purchases for us. It's what we will enjoy in heaven. In the garden, friendship with God was, was sweet and unhurried and untroubled. And it's going to be sweet and unhurried and untroubled in heaven. But friendship with God is not something we're meant to only look forward to. It's something that we're given today. Jesus says in John 17, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In this world, we have trouble. Our lives are a mess. Our lives are chaotic. The world around us is chaotic, just like it was for Abraham and Sarah. But Christ means to give us eternal life now. To know him, to know the Father, to walk with him in our particular situations, to have our particular burdens carried by him, to engage with him in the work that he is doing and around, in, in us and around the world because we're his friends. He's our God. We are his people. He means to know us personally. Let's pray. Father, you have come to give, you, your son has come to give life and to give it abundantly. We are meant to know you and to walk with you. You care about the details of your life, of our lives, and you invite us in to the work that you are doing. Help us to draw near with confidence to your throne through the blood of Christ. Amen.